you don't know me. There's no reason you should. If you've heard of me at all, it's probably as hot Carla, but my name's just Carla. This is Elliot Alderson's journal, but now it's ours. Well, mine, that I'm sharing with you, so I've written you a few notes in it too to make sure you're getting all the right details. If you've found this notebook, I hope you're qualified to read the intimate thoughts of one of the most interesting people you will ever encounter. Hello, friend. It's time for the Hello Friend podcast, all about the show, Mr. Robot. I'm so excited to be here with Henry. My name's Margaret, and we're resuming our podcast in anticipation of the start of season three. Hey, Henry. Hey, Margaret. How are you doing? It's been a while. It's been such a long time. We're here to talk about something very special related to season two and I think for the upcoming season, the companion book that goes along with the series named Red Wheelbarrow. Yeah, the show's creators seem to know that it would be hard for all of us Mr. Robot fans to wait the months between season two and season three without something to chew our teeth on. So Red Wheelbarrow was released in audiobook form as well as book form. Margaret and I are here to discuss it and kind of think about what it means uh, in the context of season three. The book is, of course, based on the show by Sam Esmael, and it was written by Courtney Looney. There's the audiobook version, which is read by the actress who plays Hot Carla, Eve Lindley. So you have lots of options to engage with Red Wheelbarrow, whether it's book form or audiobook form. Henry, did you listen to Red Wheelbarrow, or did you read it, or both? I listened to it. What about you? I've listened to it as well. Eve Lindley did a great job of narrating the book and giving voice to the different characters, including Carla, but also including Mr. Robot and Elliot. Her Mr. Robot voice was spot on. She does Christian Slater almost a little bit better than Christian Slater does. I read some notes up on Reddit, which I try not to really do, but just to get some background on the book, I did learn that Leon, at least, is going to be playing a larger role in season three. I think having the book in hand would have been a real benefit because of all the drawings and Easter eggs. I, I like the intimacy, the sense of intimacy that it brings. Like uh, Eve Lindley does a really great job with the narration of the audiobook, where you, you feel like you're part of a whispered conversation. You know, it, it kind of uh, feels like this very hushed, uh, intimate uh, dialogue that you're having, or you feel like you're inside Elliot's mind as he writes uh, in his journal. Makes you feel like the show itself. With Mr. Robot, you have a lot of voiceovers with Elliot, quiet, intimate whisper that he, that he has with the audience. And in a way, you get the same feeling with this audiobook. But I definitely want to get the physical book and check it out just to kind of get the visual experience of it. Because it looks like there was a lot of care and effort put into making that an experience also. Where does the term red wheelbarrow come from? We've been introduced to this before at the start of season two to a poem by William Carlos Williams. It's such a short poem. It says, so much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. And who doesn't like chickens, Henry? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... I don't know what to say about that, Margaret. Who doesn't like chickens? It's almost like not standing for the national anthem. It's just inconceivable. 
<laughs> it is. It is. And, you know, when we first were introduced to Red Wheelbarrow, just to remind people from season two, it was it was also in reference to bringing up another poet, E.E. E. Cummings. So uh, Sam Esmail loves throwing in those those literary references for folks like us to, to pick out. Even later on in the season, Terrell recites the word, so much depends on the red wheelbarrow. We could go down that rabbit hole. But one thing I do think is interesting is that the, the shots in the TV show of the red wheelbarrow book were written in Rami Malek's own handwriting. And the actual book itself, the print book, was based on that kind of style of writing. So basically his own font. I definitely appreciated how much it went deeper into Elliot's thought processes. There are really three or four main characters to speak of in The Red Wheelbarrow. There's Elliot, who is one voice. And then there's the clear and distinct voice of Mr. Robot that chimes in and draws not safe for work, but probably safe for prison drawings in the book. And then we get to see Carla, who saved the book from burning and sort of is the keeper of the journal. And she not only is reading all of these different parts, but she herself interjects as a character when Elliot says things about her that she wants to provide commentary on. So, yeah. And it also got me thinking about, uh, you know, journaling, like whether I should start being more diligent about how I journal. Um, And then also the privacy consequences of it. Like, do I want to journal electronically or? Yes. Pardon the Harley Davidson going by my house. Everybody who uses Twitter is journaling on some level, wouldn't you say? I definitely would say. And that's why I don't feel so guilty about not journaling because I have something set up where I capture various things that I do and I automatically uh, record them in a kind of like an auto journal. If you want to do something like this, it's really easy to do it with if this then that. And you can go on Google and do some searches and find out really quickly how to do this. But that's also an interesting form of journaling is you can just keep this automatic record of tweets, Facebook posts, uh, physical activity, sleep, weight all these other stats about your life that are generated by the devices that you carry or the services that you interact with to keep a automatic ongoing journal of sorts of what you do. Yes. And as you well know, Henry, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but that's what we often call the quantified self in tech. I mean, that was a trendy word a few years ago. It's really possible to just modularize your whole life and have all of these automatic and passive ways to record, like you're saying, uh, sort of everything. So a journal seems kind of quaint at this point, maybe. Yeah, but maybe also very effective. Like when you think about how you can keep something fairly private and confidential and not feel some sort of uh, anxiety that a government agency might either be monitoring it or get access to it at some future point. A physical journal is really nice because you can be sure that you're not being monitored or surveilled and you have the ability to destroy it completely by burning it. It's just that you have these other sort of attack vectors that Har- Carla represents where it's intercepted before destruction. When I was younger and I had my journal and it was read on me, I then reverted and created my own code, my own written code that I would write. And I still know the code today. And I mean, it wouldn't be so hard to cipher 
but I mean, it would have taken a little extra effort. So that's something else that I think is interesting that even though it's possible to have these analog old school methods of journaling, you still introduce these tricks like encoding certain things. Well, I mean, I I think that's an interesting point because I think we live in a time where we are always at least I am, thinking about security and privacy and how various things in our lives are not as secure as we actually think that they are. So what you describe is like uh, of an, an adaptation to feeling insecure, and it creates sort of an overhead uh, because you have to encode things. Isn't this like what Wiki WikiLeaks says that they want to do? Is like they want to basically create so much friction around non-transparency that it eventually just breaks down. Yeah, that's what that's one of the things they definitely say they want to do. I mean, and one of the things that I was thinking about when I went through some of these internet resources was thinking about how deep we actually want to go down these rabbit holes in these podcasts and where I kind of see this podcast fitting into the other things that are going on in the fan multiverse of Mr. Robot. And I don't really think I envision this podcast something where we're discovering things that no one else has really discovered. It is pretty impossible. I do have to say I really enjoyed the insights that Elliot had for how he constructed his prison as living with his mom. Is that the ideal or the worst environment for rehabilitation, living with <laughs> one's mother? Well, especially Elliot's mother. She sounds like a nightmare. And, and in a lot of ways, Elliot's father probably wasn't all that great of bargain either in the parenting department in some ways, but they make the mother out to be terrible. And I mean, I think they really bring that out a lot in the Red Wheelbarrow book in a way that they don't in the series, the TV show. And do you think his relationship with his mother also in some ways informs his relationship with Carla? It would have to on some level. His relationship with his mother and his relationship with hot Carla have some sort of interconnection, but I'm still trying to figure out exactly what that is. Uh, because Rami Malek, the actor, has his own level of androgyny that he plays with. And then there's the character of, you know, he plays on Mr. Robot itself. Um, and so it, it to me, it's always been interesting why this relationship with Hot Carla and Elliot exists and to what extent, yeah, there's other things involved here. If some of the theories that I'm starting to develop about who Elliot is and who his family is in relationship to the world they're in are sort of accurate, I think you're very much potentially onto something. In the same way, Elliot is maybe even fixated on Tyrell too. The book drew on how Carla, as a transgender person, has to basically deal with on on a really ongoing basis in that place in terms of defending her right just to be alive and to walk down the hall. I, I don't think the purpose of Red Wheelbarrow was to raise awareness there, but I think they do a really amazing job of communicating what, what that must be like for her. It's hard for me to think about Hot Carla without also thinking about Chelsea Manning. For me, Chelsea Manning and what she went through while in prison and before and after. Even though the time between the end of season two of Mr. Robot has only been a few short months, it feels like it's a world away. And some of the realities that were posited in Mr. Robot on a sort of dystopian sci-fi level feel like they've actually come to fruition in a lot of ways. I mean, and so 
your reference to the parallels between how Chelsea Manning, I mean, she tried to kill herself, I, I think at least once while in prison. To me, that's a bit of the elephant in the room going into season three is this relationship between the show and the, you know, Trump presidency and the world that we live in. The period in which Mr. Robot ended and when which season three is starting is basically pretty much bookends the beginning of the Trump presidency to now. And the things that have happened in our world in that time and the norms that have been shattered, to me, makes our world increasingly one in which Elliot and Mr. Robot would recognize. It's surprising how much it really has mirrored certain things. If you think of one of the slogans from one of the previous seasons, it was, our democracy has been hacked. That was really good, dystopian, almost science fiction. But now when it's in the regular news headlines that our democracy might have been hacked, it's eerily predictive within weeks and months of each other versus years or decades. Well, if our reality increasingly resembles science fiction, then maybe we should try to learn some lessons about what our reality means, right? I mean, otherwise, it's a little bit absurd to me how much our reality is increasingly starting to resemble science fiction stories that were written in the 70s as well. There are some really funny references peppered into Red Wheelbarrow, and we're not going to be picking apart everything. I mean, it's better just to get the book or to listen to the audio book or kind of both. They do make a lot of references to 90s sitcoms, so Mad About You and Seinfeld. Research those a little bit. There's a lot of talk about those two shows that Leon is into. Um, because that's all that's available in the prison. But one thing I think is interesting that I I just discovered from Wikipedia, so I'm not like some brilliant researcher, is there there were crossover episodes where Seinfeld and Mad About You actually interacted with each other's storylines. And then you start to wonder things like that or references to the Ouroboros, the snake eating itself and the red wheelbarrow. I mean, what does that really mean for the story of Mr. Robot in general and how it mirrors reality? Yeah, I mean, uh, so that's interesting that you touch upon that because to me it relates in part to information density um, and how the show both talks about it and uses that concept of information density. So like information density meaning like using complexity and the amount of information itself as an asset in how you deal with information. And so there are certain things like visually that's much easier to interact with Mr. Robot with because there is so much that's actually there. The show's creator has like created a labyrinth of Easter eggs, not just one. And it's really hard to kind of get at and process other than visually um, through a certain type of medium. Like it's, it would be really hard to absorb all the information through like spoken form, for instance. Does that make sense? They really layer on so much. In preparation for this podcast, I listened to the audiobook pretty much a second time. Even doing that, I felt so much more informed and more intrigued by all of the different references they have. The Catcher in the Rye, the book that Elliot gives to Carla, it's wrought with symbolism for on so many levels. It's almost like a cliche, right? Like if someone has a <laughs> notebook filled with arcane scribblings and ideas about the nature of the world somehow catcher in the rye is involved you know isn't that kind of uh, like it's like the number 23 yeah and actually if you <laughs> want to go down those that that road and you probably know this too in conspiracy circles catcher in the rye is considered one of those manchurian candidate 
books like Wizard of Oz that triggers people into like a pre-programmed stupor to carry out certain like nefarious things. Catcher in the Rye is one of those books. So you're right. It's a cliche. (laughs) So it's kind of interesting to see the writers both acknowledge it and use it at the same time. There are tic-tac-toe games inside the book itself that probably correspond to some kind of zero-one code. Yeah, it's just really multi-layered, and you can go in any direction. Geek Love is a book they reference. It's uh, about a family that genetically changes its children and its family to give it different powers. I mean, there's so many levels of metaphor going on. And so how does one really arrive at the truth, right? It increasingly becomes a little bit like a hall of mirrors, like the further you go, the more ambiguity that exists, the more that you have to kind of dig deeper. And maybe that is also a good metaphor for the world that we live in. Like we live in a world where Donald Trump is a president and people are trying to figure out the truth of his presidency and what went on in 2016, what the Russians did or did not do. And to me, it reminds me of those stories you hear about old spies who eventually lose their mind because the world increasingly becomes a hall of mirrors and they don't, they lose uh, a sense of the truth. And, you know, this is what happens to people who are trained intelligence professionals who become this way after decades of working in, in intelligence services. And what happens to a population that's exposed to a lot of the same forces over time? Like, does that, Does that not bode well for the state of our society? Yeah. And what does it mean when your brain is sort of primed to start looking for these patterns and symbols? And to your point, are you literally going down the rabbit hole where, sure, I can make all the connections between geek love and Tolstoy's resurrection, the URL that's linked to that QR code that's in this? Is that pointing more to truth or just more lies? Yeah. And can you you ever actually arrive at the, the truth? Like, even in the world of Mr. Robot, I don't think everything's going to be tied up into a nice little bow. There's going to be a lot of hanging chads, so to speak. I think so too. And there were a couple points in Red Wheelbarrow where I think if you read it a couple times or read it and listen to it or any combination of the above where they really do try to point you to a few things or your attention. So so definitely there the QR code. There's a really great Easter egg it leads to this very interesting retro 90s style website. I don't know if I should mention the name of the URL or let people just discover that on their own. You see references to the Wizard of Oz where Elliot says, you know, I'm just always interested in what's behind the curtain. It goes on and on and on. I'm glad that we're doing this because we're living in this age of Trump and the Mr. Robot stuff, it seemed really far-fetched, but some of the stuff that's happening with Trump, it definitely gives food for thought. Oh my God. It's just unbelievable. I mean, it's almost like how can they outpace what is happening in the real world? What with the rise of artificial intelligence? I just did a talk myself the other week on how video games use artificial intelligence. We're seeing fake bot accounts and people thinking they're real. And it's a... Pretty interesting times that Mr. Robot predicted by a matter of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, um, yeah, there, there's a lot. Uh, and for me, I'm still tr- trying to figure out like how it all 
kind of fits together and how it relates together. I know. I'm I'm really excited for season three. I know season two was sort of meh in a lot of levels. And I think what's happening is the fan community is they're so good at researching the Easter eggs and also sort of predicting where things are heading. And because Mr. Robot is really so connected to what's happening IRL in real life, it's kind of easy to follow the storyline, shall we say. Uh, And I think it presents a challenge for the show's creator in terms of keeping things fresh and still finding interesting things to say when reality is itself so odd and unbelievable at times. It's hard to have Mr. Robot have the impact that it does. Um, Because Mr. Robot, in some ways, is living this, you know, post-reveal existence, right? Like those shows that you mentioned with Wizard of Oz or all the other shows that it kind of shares elements with, those shows were all kind of wrapped up after the reveal. Only like Matrix kind of comes to mind as a show that continued on after the reveal. And it didn't really make a lot of critical waves with how it handled itself post-reveal. So where does Mr. Robot fall in the spectrum? I hear you. Maybe this is a good time to mention that because I I do see a lot of similarities with Mr. Robot and the Matrix. Since the end of season two, I had the opportunity to watch the revived Twin Peaks. That season didn't really follow a very specific storyline. And I remember all the different times we podcasted previously, Henry and I kept saying, oh, that Mr. Robot scene with Angela and Elliot eating in that dream sequence, it was very Twin Peaks. But the truth is, is there's kind of nothing like Twin Peaks. (laughs) Because Twin Peaks was impossible to predict because of how David Lynch tells stories. But you're right, Mr. Robot, it's been kind of easy to predict, unfortunately, because it's sort of what we're living through. I mean, even if you look at the role of what the 5-9 hack is all about, right, which is basically wiping the lead of the world financial systems. Well, look at what's happening with blockchain and blockchain currency right now. What does that imply, right, for the future of money? Or Equifax. You know, mm-hmm. the, when the Equifax hack happened, I immediately thought of, you know, F-Society and Mr. Robot and thought of, you know, the similarities there. Uh, because one way in which people could attempt to undermine the existing order is to subvert trust in the existing institutions. Like that's actually what Russia is trying to do with the U.S., right? And the West, the liberal Western democracies in general is to subvert trust in trusted institutions. Like the first element of uh, the playbook is to sow chaos and weakness and discord in your enemy. Here I am throwing a Game of Thrones reference for the hat trick, (laughs) you know, but Littlefinger says chaos is a ladder. And this is exactly what we're seeing with how social networking platforms have essentially been weaponized by groups with nefarious interests in undermining our democracy. Yeah, and I think, and I'm, I, wa- I want your help in kind of figuring this out. This concept of when you're building a connection between one thing and another, oftentimes the assumption is made that that connection is only going to bring good things to the person building that connection, right? But a connection is also a two-way street. Like the same roads that were used for trade can also be used to invade later on. And what we're seeing is that the connections that we've built between ourselves and the rest of the world can now be used to push things back to us that aren't so great. And you know, it's also really interesting. There have been a lot of social science-y type studies, which I know you're aware of, which talk about connections like nodes or major influencers and 
strong and loose connections. And there are often these gigantic leaps of faith that people are willing to do through loose social connections online that they might not ever do if you were living under the same roof with them. There's just this willingness sometimes to make those associations. It's pretty insidious. And then and then the role of algorithms, right? Yeah. And the ability now to run experiments on a very cheap mass basis. Like one of the reasons why these Twitter and Facebook accounts could be used as part of this information warfare it was, was the availability of technology to make it very cheap to create and operate these accounts. You needed some form of AI. Like I don't know what Twitter accounts you follow, but there are some accounts that talk about, you know, theft of a DARPA AI iWeb. And while it's probably not true and it sounds kind of, you know, really hokey, it does kind of get you thinking like, well, okay, well, what about if DARPA and some of these people are fooling around with AI? What would you create AI for? And what would happen if the AI slipped out of your control and was used by other people? It sounds like a science fiction plot, but you know, then again, who knows? Yeah, and what if you made lots and lots of money from that and your incentives for looking into that were not necessarily so strong because of the money tied into it or maybe you have investors? I was just having this conversation the other day about writing artificial intelligence and, and creating artificial intelligence. It was actually with the neuroscientists I was talking about it with, and I'm by no means an expert, writing artificial intelligent agents is as much of an art as it is as a science. It involves not only technical skills, but it also involves certain worldviews and understandings. It really is an art. And, and because humans create them at this point, even if they do adapt like neural networks, for example, they can be gamed, right? And exploited. Yeah. I, and I like the fact that you termed it an art because science requires it to be replicable, right? And increasingly, what I'm learning is that these uh, machine learning AI algorithms are not replicable. Like people cannot actually explain why they're able to do the things that they are able to do. And it's hard to reproduce behaviors. So yeah, more of an art than a science, but incredibly powerful art. That's why, you know, a few months ago, I was really a big proponent, and I still am a big proponent of algorithmic transparency. I don't think the average person understands if you're getting 90% of your news from Facebook, that's already being served to you based on all these predetermined algorithms. And it's it becomes kind of an echo chamber, but it's impossible to be fully transparent once you set algorithms or AI, artificial intelligence out into the wilderness onto its own. And I think we're at a bit of a crossing roads as a society in terms of mindful innovation, because we can decide not to let some of these algorithms out into the wild, so to speak, uh, without certain constraints built in. Like, for instance, algorithmic transparency to say you cannot use an algorithm in commercial uh, for commercial applications unless there's algorithmic transparency, uh, period. And if that was a strictly enforced rule, things would develop a different way than if we just kind of let it be the Wild West. And we as a society take on certain risks as well as costs and benefits by doing it that way. And even Elon Musk has been really outspoken about this, as you know, Henry, and he has established the Open AI Institute, which is another effort underway to make as much of this, this know-how and these systems open source, which is, I think, another component of that kind of transparency. We'll never achieve full transparency, I believe, but we have to set about with that sensibility, right? Yeah, because uh, before, 
before, maybe before this particular techno technology period, if you wanted to acquire knowledge, it bore certain physical real world costs. Like if you're going to run experiments, you had to blow things up or assemble things. Uh, but increasingly, knowledge and innovation come from these experiments and processes that don't actually exist in the physical world. Like you run, you know, uh, something on a computer, uh, you run uh, simulations. And so in that environment, you, you have to then have other reasons why not to do certain types of research or experiments. Does that make sense? Like before, if you want to know certain things, you had to take on certain costs in acquiring that knowledge. And like you hear about stories about like Da Vinci, uh, you know, doing work with cadavers and doing vivisection because he wanted to know how the human body worked and how he took on certain risks at the time for doing so. Now people don't have that same limitation because all that can exist on a computer somewhere. And so I think society has to have some other reason in place for certain types of knowledge not to be uh, worked on. Absolutely. And, and why does that matter? Well, when you go on Twitter and you see for example, elected officials having full-on arguments and extended discussions and debates with what is essentially an adaptive bot <laughs> that someone somewhere probably wrote with a few lines of code <laughs> sitting anywhere in the world. You start to get a sense of like on a human level, what that means, but but there's not a single area of our life that AI will not be touching or isn't already touching. It's an explosion of know-how. Artificial intelligence, like tic-tac-toe games that are referenced in the red wheelbarrow to program a uh, tic-tac-toe game, as you know, Henry, right? That's artificial intelligence. In a way, AI, a lot of AI innovation to me has come from games, yeah. you know, because uh, we all grew up, we grew up in a video game uh, culture. Uh, that's been marked by ever-increasing levels of sophistication in your computer gameplay, right? From Pong to this, like, you know, very simplistic opponent bouncing this ball back at you to, you know, these games that are available now where you're living in simulated worlds and galaxies and universes with multiplayers. It's amazing. Virtual reality has a long ways to go. Augmented reality, the new shiny thing, or it's not new, none of it's new, but it's developing at a rate that I think is new. <laughs> I just saw an episode of South Park where Cartman was interacting with his Alexa <laughs> in his Google Home. Just start to wonder the role of like the internet of things and the connected homes and driverless cars and credit reports, which are driven by artificial intelligence and algorithms and your healthcare, personalized healthcare will probably be driven by that even more. It's, it's remarkable. And Mr. Robot really brings that out on a very intimate level, I think. And so would you recommend Red Wheelbarrow at the end of the day? Uh, for hardcore fans, yeah. Uh, for someone who's just a fan of the show, probably not. Uh, but yeah, for anyone who's pretty hardcore, I would definitely recommend. Uh, there was a lot of interesting stuff uh, just in terms of background about Elliot and Hot Carla. And what, you know, just interesting details like uh, what would you choose the game that uh, Elliot played with his sister um, where they had to, you know, where they would pose these questions to each other. I thought it might be kind of a fun thing for us to start doing on this show uh, from week to week. I think that's a great idea. So it's a game that occurs in Mr. Robot that you were saying Elliot plays with his sister Darlene. What what is it? Uh, how does it go? And let's do it. I'm ready. So basically, examples were given like Skittles or Reese's Pieces, right? <laughs> um, you know, you, you're forced to make a decision between these alternatives given by the other person. Um, and so I'll pose one to you uh, right now. Um, 
blondes or brunettes? Oh gosh. Okay. Um, brunettes. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, and I will reveal brunette as well for myself. Um, another one, uh, I will uh, pose to you, which would you choose iOS or Android? Oh, um, Android. <laughs> so for me, iOS. Now, I don't like to talk about a lot of like personal security or technology details because I think it's kind of like a security risk. But I will talk a little bit about this because I have actually just talked about this the other day with a colleague of mine. iOS or Android if you're a privacy lover, right? Because increasingly, Google and Apple represent different choices in this ecosystem with regards to data privacy, right? You're right. You're right. And uh, it's true. Apple has taken a stronger stand in protecting privacy, haven't they? Yeah. I, for me, I think part of the difference is that Apple tends to do a lot of the stuff on device and uh, encrypted on device as well. Whereas Google does a lot of things in the cloud and they have a lot of investment already in kind of a cloud infrastructure where you use Google services and backends for critical things in the Android ecosystem. So to me, that's always just made me a little bit uncomfortable. Like it's really hard to use an Android device without also giving Google access to a lot of information about yourself. That's a really good point. And you're making me want to change my answer. So what I will explain is the reason I chose Android is the obvious answer is that it's a more open platform in terms of being able to deploy it around the world. However, you're right in terms of both. I guess the monetization, but in terms especially of how much Apple has gone out there to protect privacy, you're right. There's no comparison. Uh, that's a good one. Do Thanks. You, <laughs> do you uh, have, I have another one. Oh, bring it on. Bitcoin or Ethereum? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, oh, gosh. I don't. I've been trying to study up on the two of them. I know Ethereum's hot and Bitcoin's sort of tried and true. I'm just going to say Bitcoin. So I would say uh, Ethereum. Um, part of it is because I, I I think I'm too cheap to buy into Bitcoin now. <laughs> and so I like the fact that Ethereum is cheaper. Um, and Ethereum, you know, did have that... Uh, security issue they forked uh so i have some faith that it's been a little bit battle tested um and i like the fact like a lot of these icos that you hear about they're all using ether uh because ether allows you to kind of auto execute contracts based on uh verification so it it's increasingly like serving its use as a bit of a bedrock bedrock architecture uh for linking like value to transactions i read something about ethereum which made me sort of not go with that but i can't remember exactly what it is isn't it funny how you can totally form an opinion off of something you can't remember the source like isn't that doesn't that kind of show how effective information warfare is like when i actually thought about why i don't do or do not do certain things it's actually kind of shocking the extent to which my behavior is shaped by things that i cannot even remember the source yeah you know i had that experience i was doing a live radio interview the other day about artificial intelligence as i mentioned and i had referenced the fact that i read somewhere that china instituted essentially a social a score for their for the population. And I was really second guessing myself and doubting myself because I take in so much information as I'm sure you do. And then I spent a lot of time on Twitter and now it's 280 characters. Can't control for the Nazis, but <laughs> let's double the character limit. Leon or Hot Carla? Leon. Okay. I would say Leon too. Why would you say? Leon just seems like someone who could get things done. You know, like he he's he's basically in jail 
Kyle to watch after Elliot, right? Like that's what alluded to in the red wheelbarrow and on the show itself. Like he's in there on a mission, right? And he executes on that mission. Um, so he seems like a very effective man. And uh, I'm also a Seinfeld fan. So I'm sure like, you know, I, it seems like a type of guy I would like to have on my side. I will also say Leon too, for pretty much similar reasons. In the beginning of the Red Wheelbarrow book, he he did drop that he works with somebody who's very much like the soup Nazi from Seinfeld. And of course, we should definitely take that to be White Rose, who's very obsessed with time. Carla certainly has the potential to sort of edge Leon out eventually, but we just don't know enough about her backstory. I have to think she's a lot more significant than maybe we may realize. I think in the world we live in right now with information overload, you're not going to be able to avoid getting served so-called fake news or something that's not true or, or very biased. And it's really just a matter of not giving up or feeling helpless, but being able to adapt to that reality and not get discouraged. I mean, isn't part of it that we all lack a process to kind of evaluate information and act on it in this world? Like we kind of process information in a very superstitious way still, if you think about it, right? Like we hear about things from like various sources that we can't even really remember. We kind of form these opinions based on who we know and, you know, the environment that we're in. And then we and then we act on these things as murky of a source as they all come from in our behavior, you know, but we don't really have a process, even like fundamentalist Christians have a process by which they judge information. Like they hear a piece of news, they, you know, they think about what their pastor would think about it or what their, you know, a uh, priest would think about it. And they think about what God would think about it and what the Bible says about it. And based on whether it conflicts with those things or not, they form an opinion. But for a lot of us, we don't have a process to figure out truth. Yeah. It- we we don't. We often base it on maybe things our friends have shared with us, or we fill in the blanks with our belief systems. I was looking at the trailers for season three coming up, trying to figure out what that meant for season three. And there's just so many things going on. Like you can take everything very literally, but then there's always that layer behind where even what you see and what the show tells you is going on, you can't actually trust for an entire season, let alone for the entire arc of the show. You know, we've learned of all these kind of like season long deceptions, shall we say, but I think that there are further, like there are longer term deceptions going on. And I think you have a theory about this that I think is great. Yeah, and apparently at some panel where Sam Esmail was a part of, he did say he had an end game in mind for the story. You want to make a prediction? I have an ultimate prediction where I feel like I know where the show's going from, honestly, from Red Wheelbarrow. I think I'm going to hold off on that. I will Ooh, say, teaser. I just feel like I know where it's going. And I feel bad because if I'm feeling like this, there are probably like a million people on Reddit who are like a million miles ahead of me on that front. I think the deceptions will continue. Like I'm going to take everything that's presented to me in the upcoming season three with a, a huge grain of salt. Uh, Cause uh, I think both season one and season two have shown that the writers are perfectly willing to uh, deceive the audience it had a lot more empathy for Elliot and his actions and 
various moments in season two after living in his skin and experiencing it through the form of his journal. And I think the show's uh, creators were really actually creative in using this format to give additional depth to Elliot's character. Because it's really hard to get some of the things that we got out of the book out in the form of a story on a show. I don't think we're going to come across any theories that are necessarily like going to out-nerd some of the people that we come across on, on Reddit. Or it's like, I slowed it down and frame by frame by frame, like very in Morse code, the color changes in Morse code. And it spells out this number sequence that if you run it, you know, like there are people who go really far down this rabbit hole. I don't think we can match that. And so for me, it's partly of like thinking about what we kind of are good at and what we can do. It's like kind of tying the show into reality and like and tying the themes that it works with into like real life, I think is the interesting part and kind of bridging the two. I agree. There's no way we can surpass what people have already done and and the effort they put into it. There's a lot of these references to mixed reality. Yeah, this idea that things are not quite what they seem. And then when you ask yourself the follow-up question, well, why aren't they? The answer is because things are constructed, right? And so... That those are kind of the main themes in the way of the show. The five nine hack. There, that's what they're calling it, which Elliot thinks yeah. is the dumbest name in the world. Like, what do you think that ultimately is going to mean for like the upcoming season? It, you know, they're introducing the new currency, right? Evil core. What? Where do you think that's going? Zombies, Margaret. There's going to be zombies. <laughs> no. It's the ultimate crossover. All the things that were just you were talking about in terms of Mad About You, Seinfeld, you know, zombies. That's the that's the next step in dystopian kind of reality, right? It's like first everything goes to hell, and then the zombies come. <laughs> um, I, I don't think zombies will actually emerge, but I think <laughs> based on various things that you see in the trailer up to season three, it does look like you know things are kind of taking a turn for the worse like there's people it looks like uh burning things to keep themselves warm and other signs of kind of poverty and distress it looks like the things that we kind of criticized season two for in terms of not showing the fallout of what happened when f society hacked evil core are going to be much more front and center for this season three yeah i definitely think the introduction of this brand new evil core supported currency, you know, as, you know, the a unifying currency has vast implications. Yeah. And I think increasingly there's this interplay between Mr. Robot and reality, like Mad About You and Seinfeld. There's this interplay uh, that's kind of interesting, yet also distressing, depending on where you sit in the political spectrum, like uh, evil core introducing its own uh, currency I don't know how much you've been keeping up with all the ICOs and things going on, but that's a hot area right now. And you can definitely start playing, uh, you know, what if scenarios out with various corporations is issuing their own coin. Like, what if Apple, with all the cash that it had on hand, decided to introduce an Apple coin, right? Like, I think there would actually be a lot of liquidity for something like that. I think so too. And there's nothing from stopping any of us at this moment right now from starting our own currency. I mean, all of that know-how and code is out there from what I understand, that blockchain code, and you just have to adapt it, right? And I mean, then there, I mean, it's more complicated than that, but it 
there are going to be a lot of cryptocurrencies springing up. I think uh, this idea that the show puts out there of this corporation issuing their own currency is not so far-fetched. It's not, you know, it's not like watching the flash and watching someone reverse time with his speed. Like the things that Mr. Robot's talking about here are definitely plausible. Yeah. And I did like later on in Red Wheelbarrow, um, Elliot recorded Leon saying to him, life is all about the ones and zeros. It's the ones and zeros of life. And so we're getting the sense that Leon is, uh, as we kind of knew, uh, he's not just somebody who's into 90s sitcoms. He has a lot going on and a lot of um, pretty vast perspective. And I love all the philosophical conversations he gets into with Elliot and how how he's protective of him in the same way. Uh, so I'm really glad he's going to be featured more next season. But it's, uh, you know, it's going to be hard for Mr. Robot, I think, to... Uh, keep up with how dystopian our our reality has been in some ways with with equifax what and everything else hacking elections yeah you have russian bots uh hacking elections you have the president of the united states uh breaking all sorts of norms uh north korea uh, you have a lot of interesting stuff going on that makes the show less far-fetched than me it may have been if it ran ten, six years ago. I really do appreciate these conversations. So thank you for your time. And I can't wait to talk with you again when season three premieres. Yeah, sure. It was truly so much fun talking about The Red Wheelbarrow, the book and audiobook with Henry. And now we're going to be watching the premiere of season three of Mr. Robot any minute now. The suspense is killing me. So if you want to get in touch with us and give your feedback on the show or on the podcast, maybe right now the best way to do that is to send us an email at the hellofriendpodcast at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page called something like the Hello Friend Podcast. You'll find it. And eventually we'll have a Twitter page set up. We would love for you to rate and review the podcast if you're interested. And if you enjoyed this review of... The Red Wheelbarrow and our discussion leading up to the season three premiere of Mr. Robot. Thanks so much for joining us on this fun ride. Take care. 1.45 p.m. I'm getting pretty comfortable with my stalker moves and made Leon sit near Hot Carla again. Leon was giving me the suspicious eye when he told me that Santos ended up in the infirmary with a broken nose and a dislocated shoulder. I have no idea how he knew I had anything to do with that, but the guy's got some serious connections.